Hello, and welcome to the Client Experience Revolution podcast. I'm your host, Raya Gonzalez, and today I am proud to have Stacey DeArmas with us. Stacey, thank you for coming. Thank you so much for having me. Stacey, tell our audience a little bit about what it is that you do, and then we'll talk a little bit about blending culture and business and how people can take advantage of that and also be more responsible as business owners. So my name is Stacey De Armas. I'm a first-generation Cuban. I live in Los Angeles, and I work for Nielsen. And I think when people think of Nielsen, they most often think of our television ratings. They're certainly oftentimes familiar with the work that we do in, in the media space. But Nielsen also conducts social and economic research. That's my area of expertise. It's uh, marrying together the social and economic data that Nielsen collects and also analyzes from third-party sources like Census or Bureau of Labor Statistics and sort of marrying that with behavior data and what's happening Uh, in entertainment and media to better help our clients understand emerging and growth markets. Specifically, I focus on the U.S. Hispanic consumer. That's my passion and my area of expertise. Likewise, that's my passion too. (laughs) Well, perfect. (laughs) I know. I always, people are always like, Mariah, you have brown hair and green eyes. What's going on with that? And I say, I also have three daughters named Angelica, Marisol, y Gabriela. So this is something that's very important to me as well. Yeah. And we met um, in the fall because you were honored as one of the top Latinas, top most powerful Latinas for Alpha. And I got to see you speak at that conference. Yeah, it was a wonderful event. I had the privilege and the opportunity to share a lot of Nielsen insights at that event as well, uh, including some of our latest research. We embark upon these major research projects really all throughout the year, but one sort of capstone piece that we do right around Hispanic Heritage Month. And I was pleased to be able to share what was really fresh data and insights on our community at that event. So yeah, it was great to meet you there too. And we chatted on the side for a bit. Yes, absolutely. So tell us, how did you come to this? Did you always have a passion for research and data science? And how did you meld that into this, you know, specific niche of working in the Hispanic marketing space? Well, so the short answer is no. I, I don't think I was, you know, running around in high school dreaming of being a researcher <laughs> or a data scientist you know, a behaviorist or anything like that. I think it's in, within all of us, certainly these days, to, you know, and I say this with air quotes, kind of like to do our research, right? to fact check and uh, not even, you know, major things. I think, I feel like nowadays people do it for everything, right? Whether you're about to buy something and you want to do a quick scan with your Amazon app to confirm if that's the best price uh, or to do a price check uh, at Target to see, because they'll they'll price match things, you know, from Amazon or whoever. I feel like we're always nowadays kind of researching and double checking. I kind of always have had a passion and an interest for that early in my career, I started my work at uh, McCann Erickson, which is an advertising agency. And it was pretty quick through that process. I also started there as a, a TV buyer, and that is largely just research. It's a lot of what you're doing when you're buying media, media buyer. You're you're researching what programs have done, what they, what people watch, trends and behaviors. And so it became sort of a natural part of my career trajectory to want to understand what was happening and why it was happening. So tell us some of the things that are coming up like now in 2020, some of the things that, especially for people who are out there wanting to grow their business, you know, they may or may not be in the Hispanic marketing 
niche space, but why would something like what you're looking at be important for them to both recognize and incorporate into their business? I certainly think it's important, you know, diversity markets and looking at, um, at multicultural markets is increasingly important for business. Just that alone is important. But what I try and do is help clients and industry and, you know, the community understand why, right? That's, I always feel like that's my focus is sort of the why. Why is this important to you? And the bottom line, of course, is to generate some more revenue, but the how and the why of that is um, what really makes the case more compelling. So part of the work I do is I do a lot of demography work. And as we're looking at what's happening with communities and we're looking at demographic revolutions and sort of how often they occur in America. You're trying to think like, what's the next big thing, right? Everybody's looking for the next big thing, whether it's a product or, you know, consumer segment. And in this case, that's sort of what we're doing. We're looking to see what's happening with the evolution of the demography in the United States and where the opportunities are going to be in five, 10 or 15 years from now. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I think is most fascinating, and it's, it's such a simple statistic, but every time I share it, I think people are, are you know, sort of taken aback in, in understanding the changing demographics of America. So for the U.S. Hispanic community, the median age is 28, very young median age, when you compare it to non-Hispanic white, which is about 44. So if you think about, you know, this younger segment and sort of where they're at today and where they're going to be in 10 years, right? Right. You know, like, in 10 years, I, you know, 28 certainly isn't 44. No, so it is not. Thinking, <laughs> no, it isn't. Uh, and even when you're thinking about like your own career trajectory and acquisitions that you're making in your home, right? Whether it's home purchases or cars or your career trajectory, earning more money, you know, getting sort of right at the cresting these different life cycle stages. So 28 is really, I think about it as a median age, it's really right before all those major acquisitions and major lifestyle, uh, life stage changes occur, which as a brand marketer, that you're, that's, that's incredibly important because it hasn't been, it's been a very long time that you, where there's been such a large cohort right within that core important spending years. So that's really important, but equally important. So that's the median you back to a second um, for a minute to uh, seventh grade math, right? With we have mean, median, and mode. Hopefully, your listeners will enjoy this reminder. <laughs> your mean is when you add everything up and you divide it by you know by the number of inputs. Easy. Your median is when you line things up from one end to the other and you pick what's right in the center. And your mode, which is the strangest name, but it's actually the easiest one. Your mode is your most common, right? So it's the most common within any group. In the case of Hispanic, I told you the median age is 28. The mode, however, which is the where there are the most Latinos and the most common age is just 11. For non-Hispanic white, that number is 53. That's astounding. So yeah, it's, that's crazy. It's a remarkable difference. And it also think about life stage. I mean, one of the things that happens most importantly, median age for non-Hispanic white, 44. Mode or most common age, 53. One of the things that happens as you look at a life cycle expenditure curve, right, where you spend and acquire most of the things over the course of your life, later in life, there is a change in spending, acquisition, and disposable income, right? Because there is a, a change in career and, and in all sorts of... So as you have a large majority of non-Hispanic whites moving into that space, those big acquisition years are being going to be populated largely by Latinos, Asian, and African-Americans. So if you're just strictly thinking, how am I going to you know, build new loyalty among new customers and who are my, the new customers I need to serve, it's less about multicultural Hispanic marketing and more about this is the group that's coming into that space that is going to demand the attention of the brand. 
So I find that really interesting because oftentimes when I work with brands, they say, well, you know, their Hispanic market strategy is growing or uh, they have this amount of dollars allocated. And I always try and change the conversation to where I say, you know, we don't need to talk about budgeting for Hispanic communications or Hispanic marketing. We need to talk about the opportunities for your business to grow and where that's coming. And naturally that allows us to drop on, you know, the Hispanic marketing space. Totally. Well, and I am a very bad NARUP board member because I don't know the exact statistic because I wish I could pull it out in my brain right now. But one of the statistics that I loved was that we were talking about there's this huge percentage of that right now the fastest growing population that's buying as first time home buyers is the Latino population. And it's like a huge percentage. So if you're thinking about, and that just dovetails right into what you're talking about in terms of first time home buyers, and you're probably going to be able to find the statistic in like two seconds for me here. But, you know, just thinking about all the possibility and all the things that are happening in your life when you're buying a home. And if you're ignoring or not even paying a large attention to this group, you're missing a huge segment of the market. And so I think it's wise. And I think that it's right to say, don't look at it necessarily from a dollar's standpoint, but it's about being relevant. So if you as a company want to be relevant, why wouldn't you want to look into, be aware of, and position yourself in a way that is helpful and, you know, affiliates with the people who are going to want to take advantage of your services? Right. And, you know, just yesterday I was at, I was actually was invited to speak at the 121 conference when, and of course, lots of representation there from NARAP. And we were talking about, you know, opportunities and, and home purchase um, behaviors. And, you know, as you mentioned earlier, when you think about, you know, culture, one of the things that was most important, or at least that I focused on quite a bit yesterday was the influence of family and community on the path to purchase specifically for Hispanics and Asian Americans and African Americans, right? Just just how important those family connections were. And I spent some time talking about why that matters and why it's different from what you see in non-Hispanic white communities. I think it's fair to say everybody is influenced by, you know, their friends and family, right? We all, every one of us, uh, regardless of your race or ethnic background, goes to Yelp to see, you know, should I eat at that restaurant or should I use this, you know, service or this professional service provider? Everyone does that. But what's interesting is that for multicultural communities and Latino communities in particular, we rely very heavily on our closed those, you know, these very small networks. And one of the things we want to do at Nielsen is understand why that is. Why is it, it's so much more important, right? It's important to everybody, but why are we, for Latinos, there's a significant over-indexing for things like, you know, seeking the advice of others in my community before I make a purchase or, you know, uh, dealing with my finances, the way that my parents have dealt with her, theirs uh, is very important to me versus going at it on my own. And so we wanted to understand that. And that's kind of where the fun part, I think, of this job comes in. We get to try and use data to understand changes we're seeing in the market and then make that applicable for brands. In this case, one of the things we talked about was Hispanic cultures being a collectivist culture. And you know, really basing those decisions on the needs of a group or community or the individual. Things like kinship and family and community are extremely important. And they bring Latinos, you know, pride and, and loyalty and cultural harmony and just all of these things. And, and this is a really important central part of the Hispanic experience, not just the U.S. Hispanic experience, but the Hispanic experience being a collectivist 
culture. So that means that a lot of those behaviors are predisposed behaviors, the predisposition to relying upon and looking for support from within our community. Now, some of that is because the Hispanic culture just that, you know, that's part of the, you know, sociologists and cultural anthropologists will tell you that's the way the communities are. But you'd think the more time that they're U.S.-based, that some of those things would maybe, you know, melt away, but they actually haven't. And the wonderful thing about that is that the U.S. Hispanic experience was born and has grown, right? It's a very small community. Certainly it was that, you know, even, gosh, as recently as, you know, 15 or 20 years ago, there was uh, one radio station in town, maybe two, one TV station, and maybe one paper. And other than that, really not only giving news and information in language, but having the the topics and the information that the community needed, it was your community and your network. So right. even though nowadays things are so much more distributed, you can get content everywhere, those you know, raices, those like those roots for how the social construct of the community in the U.S. was built are very strong and they carry forward in how Latinos behave. Home buying is an excellent example of that. Well, and I've seen actually, now that you're bringing that up, I've seen, so I work with quite a few business owners that are starting out and just by the nature of the people that I surround myself with, I end up working with quite a few Latino business owners. And I've seen that starting out a lot are leaning on like the clasificados in Facebook as mm-hmm. their primary marketing source. Absolutely. And that has always kind of surprised me, but then it goes back to that. That's a trusted source. You know, that's where the community is at. It's looked at and shared. And again, it's trusted. I think it's interesting too, that you mentioned, because I was going to ask you, but you answered my question, but you mentioned that you thought that, or or that it would seem that it would melt away, um, you know, as it becomes more, I don't want to say diluted, but you know, as the time passes into Mm -hmm. this individualistic culture, And I've seen some of that even within my own home where we have these two melded cultures of, you know, my children are very, very Mexican and they are very, very American. They all speak Spanish and they all speak English and they all carry both parts of that part of who they are. And so I see sometimes this internal struggle and dialogue between fighting motivations, you know, but, and one culture will sometimes win out over the other, depending on the person. And so I wondered how overall in the population that translates for people who identify as Mexican American or as Latino Americano. And then, you know, the statistics that you brought saying that collectivism really does provide this strong, strong tie all the way down, even probably for people I'm thinking of, and just because I think she's freaking hilarious, Angela Johnson, the comedian who Mm -hmm. is very proudly Mexican-American, but also very unabashed about the fact that she doesn't speak any Spanish, you know? And so, you know, somebody who identifies so strongly with the culture, but then some of the things that are in culture, they can't consume because it's not in a language that they understand. I just thought it was really, that was what you just said there was a really cool statistic showing how strong that culture brings down even in the midst of so much noise, you know, in in terms of being here in the country. Yeah. And one of the things that, you know, that you bring up that I wanted to address too, is the reason that we see that, of course, the reason we see this very strong attachment to culture, of course, is 
you know, that it's a collectivist culture. So, you know, things like tradition and those are all, you know, incredibly important. But also, it's never been easier to be connected to culture than it is today. You know, I think of my dad's experience coming from Cuba in the late 60s and really and not knowing any English at all, being kind of dropped off, you know, in an American high school, having to figure it out on his own. And how difficult it was for him then, especially, you know, his family coming from Cuba, really not bringing anything with them other than what's in your your head and your heart, right? You're not right. bringing along a lot of music and, and artifacts and things like that. How difficult it would have been for him to just connect with something of culture other than the food he had in his home and, and language through his family. Like if he wanted to listen to any specific type of music or watch a program, it was just, I mean, not nearly impossible, impossible. It was just not possible. And so, you know, the technology has made it so easy for people to not only stay connected to culture, but to continue to reach out and connect to other cultures. I think it's fascinating if I right now, and I I can't say it because I do have one here, so I'm not going to say, okay, and then the name of the device. But if I said, okay, and then my device, (laughs) uh, uh, and then I said, play Maluma or play, you know, Rosalia, it would do that for me. And I can easily connect to culture through music. I can easily look on my phone and I can watch, um, you know, content on on Cuba if I want. I recently, for the listeners, if you guys haven't seen uh, Cuban Food Stories, I highly highly recommended. It's a documentary. It's hard to find. It's lovely. And it is so much more than what the title sounds like. So, but anyway, I can stay connected with the culture of, you know, the country that my parents are from. And I've only actually been to the, there once, right? I've been to Cuba once, but I feel like I know more about the country and current state there than my dad could have ever known in his youth, or frankly, than he may even now. So it's one of the wonderful benefits, but I think as your listeners and the, and the clients you're working with and the brand's that are tapping into to your podcast for insights need to understand is that, you know, culture has never been more accessible really, right, than it is now and more reachable. And so as people try to think, as people think, well, over time, language will go away or over time, language usage or over time, you know, traditions will melt or will adapt. It's just never been less true. You know, there's there are more options today to connect me to culture uh, than there have ever been in my life. And there'll be more tomorrow. I totally agree with that. And I think maybe I'm drawn to that too, but I think that we've incorporated in our own family. And then, you know, in likewise, I have a multicultural staff. So I have team that's here in the US, but I have team that is in Italy. I have team that's in Dubai. I have somebody in Qatar and I have somebody in the Philippines. And so I really resonate strongly with the Latino culture it's very rich. It's very family centric. And so I have incorporated things that I didn't grow up with that weren't part of my culture into mm-hmm. my life because I've found that it is, I don't know, I just, I, it just resonates with who I am. And maybe that's why I have a podcast for heart centered entrepreneurs and professionals. This is something that I think that you can find family and culture and beauty in so many things when you open yourself up to it. And I think that we should absolutely incorporate that into how we show up at work and how we interact with our coworkers, our team, the public at large. We should be looking at how we can learn from each other. Right. That's why our businesses do so well too. I mean, if you look at Latino-owned businesses and Latino entrepreneurs, they are growing at a faster rate. When I speak to Latino entrepreneurs, I always say, and I really mean this, I say, your business does well because of who you are. And I don't mean 
who you are. It's who you are culturally. You are naturally high touch. You are naturally engaging. That's a cultural predisposition. You can't take that away. And that's not to say that there aren't, you know, it's very painting with a very broad brush. And it's not to say that there aren't different personalities and all that. But when you come from a collectivist culture, caring about the needs of the group and valuing the community over yourself and uh, you know this and loyalty and, and harmony, these are things that you really can't strip entirely out of who you are. And that's part of the reason when you do business in particular, not only with everyone, but with other Latinos, you win that loyalty and you do so well, because that is, you know, it's a, it's a very deep connection, one that you may not even realize, you know, on the surface level. It makes me think when I, uh, way, way early in my career, so I think I started talking about when I worked at the ad agency, but of course I had a job before then. And during college, I worked at a bank. And one of the things I did at that bank was I worked primarily with Latino communities. I was in Pomona, California and El Monte. And there, it was just 90 plus percent of clients that we worked with were were Latinos in the area. And they had very different financial needs than, you know, in other banks that I either had, you know, I periodically would fill in at other banks, but very different financial needs. And so my job there was opening new accounts and helping with signing loan documents and answering questions. It was funny. I was talking to somebody about this just a few days ago because we were talking about, you know, all these jobs that we had early in our career. And I was saying, gosh, I never got that bonus, whatever that was for like opening X number of accounts or whatever. <laughs> I, I always I always had the right number, but not the right kind of accounts and that I didn't really care. I didn't need whatever that was, you know, whatever the, the bonus thing was, because it would have been the wrong thing for the clients I was working with. And I feel it's funny. I'm not trying to, to say, well, I think I've always you know, done the right thing about everything. I do remember specifically my, these clients coming in and really needing simple financial advice. They either needed a way to cash their checks that they received monthly or, you know, and a $16 a month checking account just would not have worked in that situation. It wouldn't have been the right product. And versus something like a savings account, which is, you know, three or $4 a month for quarter for maintenance, and they can cash a certain number of checks as long as they keep track. I remember feeling that it was so important to match people in a way you know, that made sense for them. And that, you know, for me feels like that collectivist piece. I had to do what was best for them, not what got me my $15 or whatever it was, you know, and I did that and I I did well and I had loyal clients and, you know, that wanted to work with me and brought others in for simple things like just opening an account. But, you know, it's, it, that's just who we are, whether we're in big business or small business or where you're, whether an entrepreneur or an intrapreneur at your organization. It's about really being who you are and tapping into those natural gifts that you're predisposed to. There's another example that just came up this week that doesn't have to do with business, but I thought it was such a good illustration of this individualism versus collectivism for those Mm -hmm. who haven't before this discussion really delved into this. But when I first started dating my husband 1800 years ago, I went to his cousin's house and his cousin's wife offered me something to eat. And I said, in our culture, we always say no. And so I said, oh, no, no, I'm fine. Thank you so much. And then, you know, maybe a week later, we went back and she again offered me something to eat. And I said, oh, no, no, I'm fine. And then we get into the car and my husband, and this was not like a macho thing for him to say, but he turned to me and he says, that's the last time you tell her no. (laughs) And I was like, what? And he says, you cannot say no. Like if someone offers you something to eat, you say yes, even if you just ate. And I'm like, but she would like nothing was cooked. Like she would have to cook for me. No way. Like I don't want to make her work for right. me. We don't put people out. And yes. Yeah. And he says, no, what you're doing is you're telling her that you're too good for her food. She's going to think <sighs> that you 
don't want to eat her food because you feel like you're above it or whatever. And I thought, oh my God, that's like the total opposite of what I'm trying to communicate here. But I think, and I was sharing this with my friends who are African-American. They said, oh my God, it's the same for us too. Like if someone gives you something to eat, you don't say no. Or if they offer you, you just take it because you're insulting them if you don't take it. And I thought, what an interesting twist on here are two cultures that are trying to do the right thing and trying to honor each other. And if you don't have that little piece of information, here you're trying to do the right thing, but you're actually being really offensive. So that was just like, it doesn't have anything to do with business, but it just kind of shines a light on the way you see things. Well, no, it does. I disagree. I think it does because it, what it means is it's it's listening to what's important to your clients and the importance yeah. of culture. Yeah. As you're as you're even saying this, I'm thinking about African American cultures, and you know, one of the other things I found in my research, of course, Asian American cultures are collectivist cultures as well, but so are African American cultures. And right away, as you're doing this research, people think. Well, African-American, you know, if these are really cultures that are coming from sort of a, a home country and are ingrained, how are African-Americans also collectivist cultures? And it's really fascinating. There are collectivist cultures, but for different reasons. And it is um, specifically um, things like, you know, racism and some of the challenges, police brutality, some of the things that our African-American brothers and sisters have had to deal with here in the U.S. have encouraged a collectivist supportive community among one another. So not terribly dissimilar, but for different reasons, there is also a, you know, a support system and a system of trust in the community that um, is also based on the betterment of the community, you know, all of us sort of together and kinship. And it's really interesting to see how the, you know, these nuances and ethnic communities, how they are, you know, a, a benefit certainly to the community, but how, you know, if you think about brands and marketers and businesses, understanding those constructs uh, will really help you have better conversations and, and build your business in those communities in a very authentic way that is meaningful. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I have to say that when I was able to genuinely join the comadre table, that was the best day. <laughs> and and you and you did that eating, I'm sure, with oh, a whole of course. Right? To eat with the guys. I want to be with my comadres. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so let's dive in. I want to kind of wrap this with a bow, but something that you had mentioned that I really have been has been on my heart to kind of share and talk about and discuss in different ways is scaling. Obviously. For my business, I have scaled to a small level, but there's a lot of people who are in a similar model of what I'm doing who are doing it by themselves for different reasons. And one of the things that you talked about specifically for the Latino population is scaling and its challenges from desperation versus aspiration. So talk to me more about this because it's fascinating to me and I think that it's an important thing to be aware of and mindful in how we support each other, but also to challenge our own inner thoughts about why we're making the business decisions that we're making and to really look at them through fresh eyes. You know, our businesses do outpace growth for above all, all other groups are um, of all firms that are Latino owned. There are about 5 million or so and... I'm sorry, 12% of all Latino-owned firms, are, which are about 5 million. For non-Hispanic white-owned businesses, growth rates are actually declining and they're down more than 1 million uh, just between 2007 and 2012. So we, our businesses are in the space. We're growing. We're contributing You know, near 3 million jobs in 2016 alone. And over 510 billion in annual sales. We are, you know, definitely strongly in the space. But 
one thing I've learned is that only about 3% of all Latino-owned companies are scaled, which means generating at least a million dollars annual gross revenue. And if you look at some of the reasons, what are these like uh, motivating factors for starting a business? Generally speaking, the data supports that Latinos start their businesses out of aspiration, right? Wanting to be their own boss. I, the number for Latinas, that's about 63%. For Latinos, 65% are saying, I really want to be my own boss. Um, I want to you know, build wealth. This one's kind of interesting though, I'll tell you this. So for, if you think about greater income and building wealth, more 52% of Latino men said that that's why I want to start my own business. But for Latinas, oh, that number was only 37%. So about a third but needing more flexible hours was 47%. So almost half of the Latinas that were asked, you know, what was the motivating factor for starting your business said it was more about flexibility and work-life balance, both of those at 47 and 49% respectively, than it was about building wealth. But if you think back to collectivist cultures and also slow culture, right? Tradition and family, these things are, you know, very difficult to sort of separate from, from who we are. It begs the question, and this is what you and I discussed in the fall, was, you know, are a lot of these businesses being started out of aspiration or desperation? And how is it different? Based on the data I've seen, I would largely say that new entrepreneurs are motivated by opportunity more than anything else. I don't think it's especially... When you look at things like the increase in educational attainment, just in the, in the past several years with Latinas going to college immediately after high school, more than any other group surpassing the national average, there is definite aspiration. I think it is less that they're you know, fighting a glass ceiling or not finding the opportunities in the, in the traditional market space. I think it's less about those things and more about carving out the perfect situation. Now, remember, Latinos in general are younger. So things like work-life balance and, um, uh, and, and wanting to have a more flexible schedule are more important to people who are younger and have children in the home versus, remember those ages we talked about, right? 44 for a non-Hispanic right. white and 53. I mean, that you know, 28, you, you're right in the thick of it. You're in the thick <laughs> of it. I was just going to say that. <laughs> we talked earlier, you know, before we started this podcast, you have a daughter and you were sharing an experience when your daughter was in her teens. And I have, my son is about to be 16 in uh, three weeks and my daughter just turned 14. And things like, you know, flexibility and that in particular is incredibly important to me. I travel a lot for business, but having the, you know, the opportunity to not, not have to, you know, be out until uh, the wee hours <laughs> of the morning working is, is something that's very important to me. So I think that while those are certainly motivators, it is really more, it's more about the opportunity than it is out of desperation. I don't think we should ignore that though. Listen, I do want to make sure I share with you. One of the things that we do at Nielsen is we look at all of this social and economic data. We try to make sense of it. The way I see my job is to talk about, you know, what's next and where things are going. Our community certainly has its challenges. And in entrepreneurship, there are many. You know, funding is a challenge there. Funding and financing, women-owned businesses. There, Our businesses are doing amazing, but there are challenges in the upfront. And we would be, you know, we wouldn't be being honest if we're not sharing that. But my job is to think about where we are going and where things and the progress that's been made versus all the challenges that have been presented. And largely, I think it's a popular misconception that Latino entrepreneurs are starting businesses out of necessity. You know, people sometimes say that they may find it more challenging in the labor market or 
other negative outcomes, things like, you know, maybe language proficiency or whatever. But largely, I believe from the data that I've seen that Latinos are starting business out of opportunity and seeing a place where they can close the gap. I love that. And I definitely see that as true, you know, just in my own little corner of the world, that would probably reflect you know, the majority of what I'm seeing in people's lives. And, and I think it resonates so true. I mean, if we can continue the stereotype that Latinos are hard workers, I'm okay with that. 54% of all Latino-owned businesses have positive annual revenue growth. And another 63% had positive compound annual revenue growth over the past five years. So, you know... That's pretty good because even businesses are hard. Yeah, you know we're we, but when you have more than half having positive annual revenue growth, then it's a great idea to start your own business. We are the hard work that we do and that we commit to, you know, to our businesses and the businesses of others is certainly not gone unrecognized. I love it. I love it. Well, I end every podcast with two questions for my guests. So the first question is. In your area of expertise, what would you give in terms of advice to the listeners that they could take away as a good tidbit to carry with themselves in making decisions? What would you say is something that they could really grab onto? Well, this is such the researcher in me. I'd say, don't believe the hype. Research it yourself. Answer it yourself. Look it up yourself. Whatever that is. You know, I tell my kids the same. The opportunity that you want be that whether it's the job or the sale or, you know, they don't have that, that doesn't exist or they don't have the, you know, the investment or they don't have the dollars allocated to close that deal or whatever. I just don't believe the hype. Do your homework. I, I tell my kids whether it is for, and I feel like that's such a trite, you know, overused thing with do your homework and don't believe the hype, but it is just so, so, so important. You know, the career I have today is one that I didn't know existed and it didn't. I mean, there wasn't really this role. I knew our community needed an advocate both with business and externally. And I didn't believe the hype that there wasn't a way for that to be. I grew it, I built it. And, you know, I know it's hard, certainly as a small business owner to stay motivated, but if there was ever a community that could do it, it certainly is ours. I agree on that completely. Well, the last question that I have for you is what, and it doesn't have to be business related, but what is the best piece of advice that you have ever been given? I have two. I have two. One's from my grandfather from Cuba and the other's from my dad from Cuba. And they're both, and I actually don't know them in, in Spanish. I know them in English, but this is, it's, I'm sure there's some nifty way. My dad always says, and I don't know, I'm sure this is an English um, an American one. Uh, my dad always says, it's better to have it and not need it than to need it and not have it. And I say that in my house all the time and it makes my kids cringe. And I tell them, you guys, this applies to everything in life, whether it's an extra degree, whether it's an extra sweatshirt, whether it's a pair of socks when you're going bowling, like (laughs) have it and not need it than to need it and not have it. Now, unfortunately, Raya, that means when you see me at Disneyland, I have, I'm the mom with like the backpack, <laughs> yes. I mean, everything. Like, what do you need? Water? I've got it. I mean, <laughs> literally anything, you know, and I suppose what that really boils down to is just be prepared. Yes. Yeah. That's the simple way to say it. But for my kids, I tell them better to have it and not need it and to need it and not have it. I love it. And, uh, and that's true. And then the other thing my grandfather says all the time, you know, my kids also just make fun of me relentlessly for this, but I am the person that picks up the penny. You know, if we are walking in the streets of New York and I see a penny or two 
in the, you know, right on the dirty, whatever, I, I'll pick them up. And then the reason I do it is my grandfather says, I'm trying to think of the eloquent way he says it, is uh, it's something like if you step over money, if you're too good for money, money will be too good for you. Since then, I always feel like if I leave a penny, just even one, that it says something about my lack of willingness to work or to try hard. And I think because my grandfather came here with three kids and nothing, that every penny, every single one had meaning for him trying to rebuild his life. And so he has always said that to us. And I will tell you it like two days ago, my daughter and I saw Penny in the Target parking lot and she looked, gave me the eye and I was like, well, pick it up. Oh, I love it. I'm yeah, going to be looking for pennies everywhere. Yeah. I mean, it's not that we're looking, but you know, when you see one, I mean, how, what is the word? Like just pompous to just step over it, you know, like I'm too good for that. And, and I just feel you're never too good to try hard, to work hard and to go for the low hanging fruit. Now that doesn't mean that you, you know, that you shouldn't, you don't want to, and there's actually another saying, right? With you step over dollars to pick up nickels or pennies, which is, is kind of the same. I have to keep that in mind too, but, but it has something more to do with, you know, being too good for um, all of the opportunities in front of you. Like no opportunity is is too small. So those are the two that I have. We say and use those weekly in the the Admas home. That is for sure. I love it. Well, I have loved every minute of this interview. I could talk to you over and over and over again, but I so so much for inviting me. It's been so fun. And we will include links on how to get a hold of you if people have more questions. But what's the best way for people to reach out to you if they have questions? The best way is you can send me a direct message on LinkedIn, uh, Instagram, or Twitter. Although admittedly, I'm a little bit more on Instagram and LinkedIn. It's at Stacy the Adamus. And Stacy is spelled with an I-E. I cannot explain that. Um, <laughs> zero people in my family can pronounce my name, but Stacy is what I yes. am answer to. Stacy the Adamus, uh, S-T-A-C-I-E-D-E space A-R-M-A-S. Very easy to find online. And you can send me a DM at any of those places. As well, uh, Raya, we can post a yes. link to the latest uh, Nielsen report that Please. is 100% free to download all 57 pages. Awesome. Thank you so much. And thank you to the listeners for joining us for this episode of the Client Experience Revolution. And we look forward to talking to you next time.